This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, September 17th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. A major attack on Saudi oil production is stoking tensions in the Middle East. Today, we'll be joined by Heritage Foundation expert Peter Brooks to discuss what happened and what it means for the region and the United States. Plus, some Democrats are calling again for Brett Kavanaugh's impeachment after a New York Times story raised a new allegation while omitting a critical detail. We'll discuss. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on iTunes and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Well, President Trump is pledging to help allies in the Middle East after an attack left Saudi oil fields burning over the weekend. U.S. officials say the attack was launched from Iranian soil and included cruise missiles and drones. The president tweeted Monday, We don't need Middle Eastern oil and gas and, in fact, have very few tankers there, but we'll help our allies. He later said the U.S. doesn't want war, but is prepared. After the New York Times published a new article about Justice Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump is striking back. The Times published an article alleging sexual impropriety on the part of Kavanaugh, but did not report until later a key detail, namely that the alleged victim has reportedly told others she does not recall the event. President Trump tweeted Monday, The one who is actually being assaulted is Justice Kavanaugh, assaulted by lies and fake news. This is all about the lamestream media working with their partner, the Dems, and added, they should be sued. Meanwhile, Senator Ted Cruz criticized the Times over its coverage, tweeting, if a high school freshman did this on a school paper, he'd get an F. And it's almost as if the reporters, editors, publisher have a political agenda. Iowa just got blacklisted by California. On Friday, California's Attorney General Xavier Becerra extended the state's ban on taxpayer-funded travel to Iowa, making it the 11th state that state employees in California are banned from traveling to on state business. The reason has to do with a recently passed law that banned the use of Medicaid funds to pay for gender reassignment surgery in Iowa. California's Attorney General said the state was taking, quote, an unambiguous stand against discrimination and government actions that would enable it. General Motors is facing a massive strike. On Monday, around 50,000 employees didn't work over failed negotiations. According to Fox Business, that meant 33 plants and 20 warehouses in the U.S. were affected. Among the areas of contention between General Motors and the union, the United Auto Workers, are health care costs and how much employees pick up at the tab whether factories will be closed, and whether union employees can be guaranteed annual raises regardless of profit, and more. That's all according to Fox Business. Indiana lawmakers are calling for an investigation into an ex-abortion doctor's clinics after over 2,000 fetal remains were found at his Illinois home. Dr. Ulrich Klopfer died about two weeks ago, after which his family discovered the preserved fetal remains on his property. Those remains have now been seized by local officials, and State Representative Ron Bacon of Indiana released a statement calling for an investigation into other clinics where Klopfer performed abortions. There's also a question of whether those fetal remains were illegally transported across state lines. Indiana's Governor Eric Holcomb said he was deeply disturbed by the discovery and that he supports the call for an investigation. The Women's March is making some changes. 
No longer on the board are three women who have become hugely controversial, Bob Bland, Tamika Mallory, and Linda Sarsour. The Washington Post reports they've been out since the middle of July, although the organization hadn't highlighted the change until now. There had been charges of anti-Semitism leveled at the women. Mallory, for instance, had ties to Louis Farrakhan of the Nation of Islam. Up next, we'll talk about the Saudi oil attack with Peter Brooks. Tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger government? Become a part of the Heritage Foundation. We're fighting the rising tide of homegrown socialism while developing conservative solutions that make families more free and more prosperous. Find out more at heritage.org. We are joined now in the studio by Peter Brooks. He is a senior research fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. Peter, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So initial reports out of Saudi Arabia were that a drone attacked the oil facilities Mm -hmm. over there. But more recently, we've heard that it was actually a missile strike combined with drones. And uh, most recently, we've heard that these actually came directly from Iran. Uh, I want to get to that in a minute. But first, what do we know for sure about what happened? Uh, that a, a huge uh, Saudi Arabian oil facility was attacked. I mean, right now, that's what we know. Uh, this had decreased their, this is the world's largest oil facility. It decreased their production by 25%, uh, affecting probably 5% of global oil uh, production. Um, so that's what we really know. Now, we're hearing a lot of things coming out, as you mentioned. I wouldn't say there's speculation, but we don't know the sourcing of it. So until the U.S. government comes out and says to us, uh, you know, this was an attack using drones or missiles and drones or missiles uh, coming from someplace in the Middle East, and there are several candidates, um, I think we have to be measured. Uh, There's a possibility that this could have come out of Yemen and Houthi rebels, although I think the distances that we're talking about from the Yemeni border to this uh, facility at Abqaiq um, is pretty far for the capabilities that the Yemenis have. We've also seen drone attacks out of southern Iraq by Iranian-backed militias. And then, of course, there is the possibility that this did come from an Iranian ship, uh, Iranian oil tankers, Iranian oil rigs, or Iran itself. Um, so there's a lot we need to know. My understanding is, once again, based on current news reports, is that um, not all of the drones or missiles uh, m- found their target. Some of them fell short. They may be available for forensic investigation. You can find out what the parts are inside. Even the ones that did explode, they will have uh, some sort of remains that could allow some sort of investigative work, forensics on it, to see where they came from. So there's a lot of possibilities. Now, that said, I feel comfortable believing that Iran was directly or indirectly involved because, once again, you're talking about the Houthi rebels. They're fighting the the Saudis in a proxy war, um, and they are backed by Iran. Uh, The Iranian militias in southern Iraq are backed by Iran, and, of course, there's Iran. Um, And the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, is the the most capable military arm of the Iranian armed forces. Now, there's interesting to say that uh, there's the Iranian armed forces like the Navy, and then there's the IRGC Navy, for instance. So um, there, there's a lot of possibilities out here. And I think what we first need to do is essentially mitigate the situation. You know, 
uh, see getting get the Saudis back online, uh, deal with global energy security, um, make sure this can't happen again. Uh, you know, perhaps uh, the United States needs to work with the Saudis on their their air defenses. I mean, it says maybe as many as 20 drones or missiles got through Saudi defenses to hit this facility. Uh, we need to attribute uh, this, what happened here. So that means all that information. Talk to the Saudis. Saudis aren't saying a lot right now, actually. Um, see what others saw. There's reports that the Kuwaitis saw uh, missiles and drones flying through their airspace. And that made people think it was Iraq or not the Iraqis, but out of Iraq or Iran. Um, then, of course, we need to consult. We need to talk to the Saudis, see what they know, see what others in the Gulf know. The president is meeting um, this afternoon with a Middle East leader. Uh, we may know more that <laughs> may happen during this podcast uh, to see what they what they know. They, obviously, the intelligence services are working very hard to figure to figure that out. So, uh, and we also need to consult with our major allies, that others that have an interest in what happens in the Middle East, the British and the French, um, and to see, decide what we're what we're going to do, and then then respond. Uh, and of course, since this was attack on Saudi Arabia, not attack on the United States, um, you know, the Saudis have to be part of that, certainly part of that conversation. The other thing I would point out, I think is really important is that we've got U.S. forces across the Middle East. I actually have a, pa- a research paper coming out on Iranian drones this week. <laughs> so it's, it's timely. It's timely. I wasn't expecting this sort of thing, but this drone war has been going on for, for a little bit. But we have forces afloat and at bases in the Middle East. And if they can hit this part of Saudi Arabia, all of them are vulnerable as as well. And, of course, we had that situation a few weeks ago with the USS Boxer uh, downed an Iranian drone that it was seen to be threatening as it was transiting the Strait of Hormuz. So before we get further into the global politics here, you mentioned um, energy security. Mm-hmm. How big a deal is it for the U.S. and the rest of the world that 5% of the oil market was taken out? Are we going to see gas prices go up? Is this going to have an effect on day-to-day life? Well, we've already seen uh, energy futures go up about 10%. I think they had peaked at about 20%. It'll, 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 we're not sure. Markets are interesting, right? Uh, and they can, uh, they can change uh, on, a, on a whim. Uh, I would expect we're going to see... I'm not an energy expert, but I'll say this here. I would expect we're going to see a short-term increase in gas and energy prices. Darn it. uh, Gasoline prices. But they go up and down anyway. I mean, think about it. I mean, what did you pay two weeks ago? And what did you pay this week, you know, this weekend? So they change, right? And that has has a lot to do with it. Now they're saying, and once again, not being the energy expert, that the Saudis may be able to increase uh, production by 25% in in the short term. So in other words, like within a week or so, they may be able to get enough of the production facilities up that it's only a 25% uh, degradation from where they were before before the strike. Um, so that would be a reduction. They also have strategic uh, petroleum reserves around the world, interestingly enough, and in Saudi Arabia. The president is also talking about releasing energy from our strategic stockpiles as well. So there'll be a lot of things. The, the energy market, you know, they've they've been through this before. Now, if you go back to the 1970s, during some of the crises in the Middle East, it changed things significantly. So I was actually surprised, once again, being a national security type, not an energy type, that they didn't go up higher than they did. They've only gone up 10%. Now, if things get worse, or if they're able to say it was Iran, uh, and there's concerns about a military conflict, then they may go up again. Remember, uh, there's a lot of things that go into the way markets go. But I would expect in the short term, we're going to, we've definitely seen 10%. I heard it was as much as 20% uh, 
and we'll have to see what what happens what happens next. So, getting at the geopolitics of this, why would Iran attack Saudi Arabia's oil facilities? It's a lot of reasons. Um, one reason that I, I think that I, I mentioned in Fox Business today, which is the one that people probably aren't thinking about, is that remember uh, it'll raise oil prices. Iran, remember, is a major oil exporter, but under the maximum pressure campaign, their exports have decreased significantly. They're the lowest they were, they have been in 30 years. So if Iran is able to drive oil prices up without them, once again, not being named as the perpetrator of this, that would benefit Iran. So in other words, for every barrel of oil, instead of being a dollar, it might be a dollar fifty, and that would put... 50 cents more per barrel in in the Iranian government coffers. So that's a possibility. They're also, remember, these two countries are rivals. I have been rivals for a long time. Uh, And one is a Sunni Arab country and one is a Shia Persian country. Um, So that makes a big difference in in the Middle East. They're also involved in a war. Uh, And in Yemen, uh, you know, the proxy state, you know, the Houthi rebels are a proxy of, of Iran. Um, so the, and Iran is trying to spread its power and influence um, throughout the Middle East. Um, so this is there's there's reasons for doing this. It's also a major demonstration of what I would say drone and missile and military might on the part of the Iranians. Twenty missiles or drones or you know whatever they whatever they were ballistic or cruise missiles or or armed drones uh, or as we call them unmanned combat aerial vehicles UCAVs. Um, it was a significant demonstration of force, and it sends a signal around the world and to others in the Persian Gulf and the United States. You know, would, for instance, um, are U.S. forces vulnerable? Are U.S. ships in the Persian Gulf vulnerable? Uh, this is this was a powerful this was a powerful statement at a minimum. Of course, once again, we don't know exactly who did this, but I I feel comfortable believing that Iran was involved in some manner. So, as you mentioned, we're recording this on Monday afternoon, so the president might say more after we've recorded it, which is convenient. But what should the U.S. response be? And some are saying, are we going to end up in another war in the Middle East? Do we give more uh, military weapons to Saudi Arabia? What what is sort of the range of options and what would you recommend? Well, once again, we don't know. Everything yet, so it's it's hard to say. But in a general in a general way, I think we go back to the facts. This was an attack on Saudi Arabia. It was not an attack on the United States. Of course, we have to raise our uh, the level of alert of our forces in the Middle East, although they knew about this threat. But I, you know, I was really surprised that there were so many missiles and drones fired in this case. Um, that uh, they, we have to make sure that we have the capabilities. Uh, to defend our forces. Um, and this is one of the things I write about in this research paper. Uh, we have capabilities to do this. You can knock dr- drones down in any number of ways. You, you use, you know, air-to-air missiles from a fighter aircraft. You use 20-millimeter Gatling guns from a fighter aircraft. You can use surface-to-air missiles. You can use directed energy weapons. You can use electronic warfare. They're, they're working on microwave. There's all sorts of capabilities for doing this. But do we have enough of it? That's a big question. And I think this is something that Congress uh, really needs to look at. And Iran is not the only drone power out there. Uh, we're talking about China, you know, in the, in the Pacific. Uh, the Russians are, you know, as far, but Iran is one of the world's uh, preeminent drone powers. So this is something we need to we need to be thinking about for the defense. So of course we have to raise our alert level, be be capable, maybe increase our intelligence. You know, we were watching things around the world. Maybe we need to shift some of our intelligence assets to for, make sure we have strategic warning against something the Iranians. 
uh, might do. Um, and we have to, like I said, once again, we have to figure out exactly what happened here before we fashion response. So in the short term, I think we need to be measured and alert um, and uh, understand that we may need to assist our uh, Saudi partners in uh, increasing their defenses. And also you have to consult with them about what they really, what they really want to do and whether other important Gulf uh countries want to do about this because Iran is a powerful country in that, in that part of the world. And in some cases, when you think about their capabilities with Hezbollah, uh, another proxy, uh, they are very capable and they have global capabilities for acts of terrorism. What's the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia like these days? Why do we, to put it crassly, why do we care what happens to Saudi Arabia? And uh, is it just oil or are there other things that work? Well, it's strained because of the Khashoggi situation. As you remember, the the, the journalist, uh, it's been it's been strained. Um, there are also people that are unhappy with the way they've prosecuted the war in Yemen. Uh, this has gone on for quite some time. Uh, some people are not happy with their tactics there. Um, and but it has been a long-standing partner of the United States for stability in that part of the world. It is the most powerful country and a leader of the uh, of in the Muslim world. And we're also really worried about Iran. Uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, Iran is causing trouble in countries uh, from Afghanistan uh, through Iraq into Syria and Lebanon. Uh, they're trying to create a swath of, uh, of power that, that, uh, a, 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 that increases the influence of Iran. And you have to remember when you're, what you're thinking about it when you're talking about Iran. I mean, this is a country that's the most active state sponsor of terrorism in the world today. Um, they are, and they are also increasing, uh, they were involved in a nuclear program that they weren't truthful about. They have a ballistic missile program that violates UN Security Council resolutions. Um, and they continue to test, they continue to test those. They're seizing tankers in the Gulf. They're putting mines on tankers in the Gulf. They're shooting down drones. Um, they are, you know, there's, there's any number, they're threatening to close the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, there's any number of issues. They're involved in cyber warfare. I mean, you guys should do a program on that. I mean, they are, they are a serious uh, actor in, in cyber uh, and it, it directed at the United States. I mean, this is a, you could almost argue reasonably that Iran is the greatest threat to international security out there. So Saudi Arabia is a partner of ours in preventing Iran from ascending to, to uh, dominance of that. They want to be the dominant power. In the, in the Middle East. Uh, my view is that they want to be the dominant power in the Middle East and the most powerful country in the Muslim world. Um, so there, there's, there's, there's things to be concerned about. And of course, I didn't even get into human rights, did I? Or governance. This is not a democracy. It's a country that represses its people. I mean, it's hard to find a story, read the paper any day about that involves Iran and not see somebody, some foreigner who's gone there to study or take video blogs or things like that. It hasn't been arrested and thrown in jail. Uh, there are some Americans that are still there. Um, so this is a very, very troublesome, troublesome state. Um, and um, I think we need to be very, very concerned about it. And the Saudi, Saudi Arabia can be a partner to ours. The other thing, I, if we have time, I, you know, a lot of people overlook the importance of Yemen. Uh, if you look, you pull out a, a map, uh, I'm old school, <laughs> or you go online and you look at Google, Google Maps. I mean, this is a very strategically located country. It's got the Red Sea. It's got the the the, uh, the Gulf there, the the uh, Arabian Sea, uh, the the Bab el Mandeb Strait, 
a lot of American forces transit the Red Sea on their way to the uh, to the Persian Gulf if they're coming out of the Atlantic. What happens if that becomes an Iranian satellite state? Where they're, where they're not just, you know, having some, some drones and some missiles. They have a lot of drones and missiles that threaten shipping, that threaten U.S. forces. Um, they can continue to threaten, uh, you know, Saudi oil supplies. Um, this is not the first refinery hit in Saudi Arabia by, by Iran-backed uh, proxies. Uh, this has happened before, usually in the southern part of Saudi Arabia because the, the drones don't have the... The, the distance or range to reach that far, that far north. But they've been attacking airports. They've been attacking refineries. These are the Houthi rebels I'm speaking about here. Um, so this is, this is something that we need to be, we need to be concerned about in terms of our view of global international security. So big picture here. Do you think there's any chance this leads to Saudi Arabia declaring war on Iran and even more big picture? Do you foresee other countries in the Middle East and or elsewhere in the world getting involved? Well, if this I'm not a lawyer on this, but as a national security type, I would say that if it it is it turns out that Iran, not the Houthi rebels, not Iranian backed militias, that if Iran uh, made this attack on Saudi Arabia, it would I would see it as an act of war, plain and simple. But like I said, I'm not a lawyer, so you know, let's let's check with our lawyers to make sure I've got this right. But I mean, I would say this is an act of war. It was an unprovoked attack on uh, on the, the land of, of Saudi Arabia. Um, so I think Saudi Arabia has the right to respond uh, or not to respond. That's their choice, um, and there are risks in doing both. There is, you know, sometimes there, you know, there is a risk in doing nothing, and there's a risk in doing something. So they have to think about that, um, and they'll want to be in consultation with the other states in the region. Uh, they have to consider: Will this increase instability? Will this benefit Saudi interests? Uh, can we do something that doesn't uh, escalate the situation? Um, and of course, the United States will want to be part of that conversation because we'll probably be, you know, we're probably because of the magnitude. In fact, we have U.S. forces in Saudi Arabia again. They're near Riyadh, missile defense forces near the airport. So we have forces there. Um, so this is, you know, this is very, very, uh, complicated. Of course, there are countries that many, many countries have interests in that part of the world. Chinese do, the Russians do, the French, the British, um, you know, think about all the, if you, if you look at some of the tankers that were, that were seized by the Iranians, some of them were like, you know, owned by the Swedes, but you know, under this flag and things along that line. So there's a lot of people, I mean, this, you know, because of our energy renaissance here, we don't, we're not dependent on Middle East oil, but. A lot of the world is. And so they are concerned about what happens in the Middle East. And if there's a war, I think that certainly will affect oil prices, right? Uh, which will affect economics, which, which will affect people's well-being. But sometimes that's what's required if you're worried that Iran might – who knows what Iran's going to do next? I mean, I actually thought we might see a bit of a – it was kind of quiet for a little bit in a relative sort of sense. You know, no tankers mined, no drone shoot-downs, no tanker seized, although I heard they seized another one today. But I heard this morning that they were also going to release the British tanker they were holding on to. Uh, the Brits released the tanker. And then all of a sudden this, you know, this sort of thing happened. So um, – and then what? look, President Trump and President Rouhani were potentially scheduled to meet at the UN in New York in the next week or two. You know, if Iran, who is the maximum pressure campaign, has had a significant effect on, on its economy, 
and on government ability to government to spend and and fund its international adventurism, uh, that may have been an opportunity for them to uh, improve their their situation. But they now there's another thing I need to point out. We have to know whether this was national policy or this was a rogue commander that undertook this attack. Okay, because many times in history we've seen where somebody locally may have done something that would not have been approved of in the capital. Now this is a pretty big strike, so I'm having hard to believe that's not the case. But could a rogue IRGC commander have done this, a hardliner? So we need to know. In fact, when they shot down the American drone, the president made a reference to the fact that a local commander had made a mistake, if you recall that. So we have – that's – like I'm saying, information gathering is the most important thing. If we need to respond, we should respond when we have that – you know, have a very high degree of confidence of what transpired. I really appreciate you coming in today. Thanks for having me. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher. And every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Sexual assault is about the abuse of power. It is always women who are marginalized. It is the young. It is the interns. It is the immigrant. It is the trans. They are always most at risk because society listens to them the least. And that is why a man believes that an elite education, a high income, and his rich friends can get away with sexual assault. So that is Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, from a 2018 speech she retweeted on Monday. Ocasio-Cortez wrote, It is unsurprising that Kavanaugh, credibly accused of sexual assault, would lie under oath to secure a Supreme Court seat. Because sexual assault isn't a crime of passion, it's about the abuse of power. He must be impeached. End quote. Daniel, are we ever going to be done debating Kavanaugh? I don't think so, at least not in the next year. I mean, it's come back a year later. It's already been a year since these hearings. And you know, what brought this up, I think, is the New York Times piece that came out, um, which is which is taken from an, a forthcoming book, basically a new allegation against Kavanaugh. Um, of course, as we mentioned earlier, what that article omitted and what it later corrected was that the the woman who apparently it happened to does not recall it. Um, this is somebody else's recollection, someone, some eyewitness, apparently. And, you know, the New York Times has taken some flack for not making that clear. And so the article has kind of been discredited, frankly, but that's not stopping AOC from making her case, I guess. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I don't believe the original New York Times article mentioned, and I'm not sure they ever added this, was um, one of the figures involved, I believe his name is Max Steyer. He was defending Bill Clinton. He was on his legal team or something during the Ken Starr hearings, the Monica Lewinsky thing, which, of course, Kavanaugh was on the other side working for Kenneth Starr. Uh, Steyer, although he didn't appear to have directly spoken to the Times, people who had spoken to Steyer, who was at this party or had heard of this or something like this, somehow it traces back to him, 
you know, that's, that's a pretty key uh, motive. <laughs> that's one of those things that you want to be open about. Like, hey, someone who has a professional reason to hate Kavanaugh's guts is our source here. Like, right. that seems fairly relevant. Was not, as I said, um, in my understanding, disclosed in the New York Times article. It's almost like the DNC giving evidence uh, to a FISA court. <laughs> it's <laughs> just... Know? I mean, it's just really appalling that, you know, obviously people can make fake allegations about sexual assault. I would say, you know, if a woman is willing to put her name on the record, although even though at this point you have to say, like, could there be liberal women activists who could just be coming out against Kavanaugh because they hate him? I I mean, this was litigated. Republicans didn't rush to confirm him. There was a pause. There was, you know, questioning. There was time. And this was someone who had been a circuit court judge for, I believe, a decade or something, a long time. Like, and none of this had come out. I mean, it can't be that you were at the mercy of people deciding at any point in time that they remembered. I mean, obviously, if there's a criminal case, Kavanaugh should face it like anyone else should. But if there's not a criminal case, and especially no one is willing to say they were the person involved, like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, the timing of this is also interesting. Uh, We might recall a couple weeks ago, uh, the attorney for uh, Dr. Ford uh, basically was speaking at a feminist legal conference and said openly in a mic that part of Dr. Ford's motivation was to taint Kavanaugh's reputation so that when he went after Roe v. Wade or made some rulings, there would be an asterisk next to his name. And that's a word she used, asterisk. So that made Dr. Ford look kind of bad. And so you have to wonder if defenders of Dr. Ford or at least opponents of Kavanaugh thought this would be an opportune time to take another hit at him. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right that what at the end of the day this is about is probably Roe v. Wade. Totally. Undermining the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Um, People don't go after random judges you know, when there's nothing at stake. I think most people have understood from the start that Kavanaugh has never been about Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh is a proxy for the issues and and hottest debates in our culture that are being litigated through the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's something that, you know, at the same time, though, we can't let this go because we've talked a lot about Me Too on this podcast and our sister podcast, Problematic Women. And obviously there are times where women feel that they need to stay silent for a very long time and they come forward and they should be taken seriously. And in Kavanaugh's case, they were. There was a hearing where an experienced, a lawyer experienced in sex crimes talked to Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. You know, the Senate Judiciary Committee looked into other things. I understand some, you know, liberals are saying, well, they didn't look far enough, but they had the whole media doing investigative legwork for them. You know, there was a there was a period of several weeks where all of this was litigated and it just Yeah, it frankly seems unfair to this guy. Like, what's it going to be every year for the rest of his life? Someone is going to say that someone told me that someone had told them that they had seen him at a party, that no one's got photos, no one's got proof, no one's willing to give names. I mean, this is, you know, in journalism, you know, obviously standards vary, but they're sort of, you know, you're supposed to want to tell the truth and you're supposed to realize People have motives. So often when it's something that could destroy a person's life, like a lot of these Kavanaugh allegations have been, it's like, do you have a direct source who's willing to go on the record? That's you really want to start there. If they're not willing to go on the record, do you have more than one person? And so much of this New York Times article seems to be a game of telephone. And it's just very troubling that they're willing to do that. 
Yeah. I think um, in five to 10 years, we'll also have a, a better view of a little better perspective of how this shakes out because to see if this kind of thing happens to future conservative nominees. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see if President Trump gets another pick if all this stuff starts happening to that guy or girl or woman. I, yeah. I mean, I mean if I, Amy Coney Barrett is the next pick, I hope she didn't go to a single party in right. college. I oh, hope yeah. she just I mean, just get books. ready for it. Yeah. And it just it also isn't it odd that this does not happen to liberal nominees. It just doesn't. Uh, and you can pin that on the media, pin that on, you know, whoever, pin that on their classmates who, you know, might be keeping quiet. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, obviously the media is pretty biased on one side and not the other. I mean, I think we sort of saw an example of this when uh, the case of the Virginia attorney general accused of sexual assault has uh, basically left the headlines. The Washington Post declined to print it. Now, the Washington Post, I believe, to its credit, they'd heard about this particular allegation and they felt it wasn't credible enough, I believe, and decided not to publish it. So kudos to them for that. But yeah, it's a it's. It should not be this easy to smear someone's name in the news. Well, we will leave it there for today. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes to give us feedback. And by the way, it's Constitution Day, so happy Constitution Day. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.